as we continue uh, in this journey of Jesus through his last days. We'll be at chapter 22, starting at verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent them to, to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him with splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate called, then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. <clears throat> Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of God endures forever. You know, we've all heard the term kangaroo court. And we've probably used it, especially in modern times, we see that happening. But how many people know the etymology of that phrase? How did we get that phrase, kangaroo court? Well, I'll give you a hint. It did not originate in Australia with kangaroos. 
believe it or not, it actually, there, well, there's some debate about it. Uh, some people say that it either started in California or it started in Texas and somewhere in the, uh, around 1841. And the idea back then was that it was assigned to claim jumpers, that they would jump on somebody's claim, and then that transformed into uh, jumping over due process and the facts. And it became a kangaroo court that uh, everything was just assumed and no real jurisprudence was given. And if there was ever a kangaroo court, we see it in today's reading. The Sanhedrin is the perfect example of this in their dealing with Jesus. Now, the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 leaders, including the priests, Sadducees, Pharisees, and elders in the community. It's debatable whether or not the high priest himself was part of the Sanhedrin. But they were in charge of both the civil and the religious law in Israel. We're told in Luke 24, 54, that they took Jesus after his arrest and led him to the high priest's house where they questioned Jesus, mocked him, and beat him. Now, all these things were against Jewish law themselves. The Sanhedrin was not to meet in the evening. They were not to meet on the day before the Passover or on the Passover itself. And, of course, they did not have the legal right to put anyone to death. We, uh, in the Mish Sanhedrin, a Jewish writing, it says capital cases could not be tried on the eve of a Sabbath or a festival since sentence could not be pronounced until the day following the trial. So here we have this Sanhedrin, this kangaroo court that is coming together to try Jesus for some crimes that they perceived that he committed. Then as we continue reading, he says, Then in the morning they took Jesus to the assembly where they would normally meet, and they tried him again. But this time they used fake witnesses that would lie to accuse Jesus of something that he did not say or something that he did not do. And it wasn't just a mild questioning, kind of like you, you see on Law and Order where, you, where the, the uh, district attorney and the police are go in the examination room and, did you really do that? Did you really say that? No, what they did was they, were, they would beat him as they were questioning him all against the Jewish law of the Sanhedrin. According to Shira Schoenberg, about 30 AD, the great Sanhedrin lost its authority to inflict capital punishment. 
That means that even though they tried the best that they could to put Jesus to death, they themselves could not pass that judgment on him. But prior, you know, prior to this day, prior to 30 uh, A.D., they actually could. But when Rome took over and made and really was impacting the uh, the Jewish laws altogether, uh, that's when they took that law, uh, that ability to inflict capital punishment away from them. But as we look through uh, the New Testament later, we see that that did not stop them. Uh, we can look specifically to the stoning of Stephen. That was with the full approval of the Sanhedrin. We see how uh, um, Paul uh, was brought to trial before them, again, all under illegal circumstances. So we have this kangaroo court, this court that is called together to then try Jesus. Then we get to the trial, and the first thing they do is... Again, this is on the day of Passover. And they question him, and they say, Are you the Christ? And I, I kind of like the way that uh, Matthew in his gospel writes it. The, the priest says, I adjure you. You know, there, there's this word that you don't use it very often, adjure. Um, and what that means is a, uh, uh, you re request something solemnly or earnestly. And then by, by asking him, are you the Christ? What they're really asking is, are you the Messiah? Because Christ comes from, is the Greek translation, uh, Messiah is the Hebrew translation, both meaning the anointed one. And I get a kick out of this because the Sanhedrin says, are you the Christ? For three years, Jesus preached the word of God, performed miracles of healing and casting out demons and calming the seas. He even read that passage from Isaiah that points to the Messiah, a passage well known to the rabbis of that time. And in, in, uh, earlier when we look, we're looking at Luke, he says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And they began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now there's over 350 prophecies regarding the Messiah. In the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilling every one of them. And yet, these learned men, these scribes, these lawyers, these Pharisees are asking, are you the Christ? 350 times it points to this one man, and they still can't see it. In these trials, the, the one in the, in the middle of the night, the one in the morning, one before Pilate, one before Herod, we see Jesus' threefold ministry being fulfilled. 
He's a prophet, priest, and king. Mockingly, we saw in Luke 23, verses 63 and 65, that Jesus was asked to prophesy. But the role of the prophet was to speak the words of God. And as we look at Jesus' ministry for his whole time, for the three years that he was teaching, he fulfilled that ministry of the prophet, speaking the words of God. First, by being the God incarnate himself and, then spe- and, and speaking for himself. And then also by speaking the words. Peter, well, Jesus asked Peter, he says, are, are you going to abandon me too? And Peter says, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Aaron Armstrong wrote, Jesus fulfills the role of prophet in that he alone is the ultimate teacher, has the words of eternal life, as John 6.68 says. But Jesus is unique in the role of the prophet because he just doesn't communicate God's will. Jesus is the very word of God and God's ultimate revelation of himself. So Jesus, in his threefold ministry, fulfills that office of prophet as the Christ would do. Then he also, as Christ, he fulfills the office of priest. Jesus, as a priest, offered the sacrifice of God for the sins of the many. Priests are intermediaries between man and God. And Jesus, as the priest, the great high priest, is the one who understands everything that we are going through. And in Hebrews 5, he says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So as the Christ, he fulfills the role of prophet and he fulfills the role of priest. But then Jesus says something to the Sanhedrin that I am sure would have upset them greatly. Jesus used one of his, the the favorite self-identifier, and he calls himself Son of Man. And he says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now these learned Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and high pri- and priests, they would have immediately understood what the Son of Man is, coming from Daniel chapter 7. And this he uses to refer to himself 
to his authority and his earthly ministry, his suffering and his death, and his future exaltation and his glory. In Daniel chapter 7, we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see how in, in Luke's gospel he says that He says, um, yeah, but from now on you shall see the Son of Man be seated at the right hand of the power of God. You see in this passage from, uh, from Daniel that he's saying the exact same thing, that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the power of God. How could these priests and teachers of God's word not have understood that? Or maybe they did, and they called it blasphemy. During his ministry, Jesus used this phrase to show his authority here on earth. In Luke 5, 24, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. In 6, 5, he says he was the Lord of the Sabbath. In 19, 10, Jesus gives his whole reason for coming. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So in his interaction with the Sanhedrin, Jesus does everything he could possibly to do to help them understand who he is. Basically, he tells them that he is the Christ, and explicitly he tells them that he is the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel. They had all the knowledge of the Scriptures and knew all the prophecies of the Messiah, and yet standing before them, they did not recognize Jesus for who he is. And Jesus tells them, if I tell you, you're not going to believe. Their hearts were not prepared to understand who Jesus is. All they saw was a threat to their power and their status. They saw it as a threat to their national security. During this time, there was a, a, a moderate peace with Rome. And they didn't want anything to upset that kind of status quo. But you know, this idea of not recognized Jesus, what is not unique to these leaders? Today, the gospel message is preached from corner to corner in this world 
to tell who Jesus is, to tell the plan for their lives, yet people refuse to hear. Their hearts are so encrusted with sin that the good news of Jesus Christ cannot enter in. It requires the work of God himself and the Holy Spirit to take that sin-encrusted heart and replace it with a heart of flesh that it may be receptive to that good news. That good news cannot... It's like when you're born, you have this covering of sin that's called original sin on your heart. But as you get older, the more sin you commit, the harder your heart becomes. The harder and more encrusted it is. That's why children are more amenable to hearing about Jesus than older people. And that's why it's a miracle when God changes somebody in their 40s or their 50s or their 80s or their 90s. That's when it's a miracle. Not that it's a miracle when children are saved too. But when you are living a life of extended living and living that life of sin, and God changes you. That is the miracle that only He can do. So Jesus goes on. And the Sanhedrin takes Him before Pilate. Now, we've already established that after 30 AD, there was no ability for the Sanhedrin to put anyone to death. Capital punishment was off the table for them. So they had to go and to the civil authorities. So they went to, to Pilate. And they said, we don't have a law to put this man to death. So what we want you to do is we want you to kill him for us. And the way they did it, was they accuse Jesus of being a king. That way they can appeal to the civil court and in that civil court they could show that Jesus is a threat to the state. Pilate hearing it, he wanted nothing to do with this whole affair. He wanted no part of condemning an innocent man. But because the Jews were stirring up the crowd, Pilate sent Jesus off to be crucified eventually. But first, he questions him. And he says, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and says, not of this world. And just as the Jews could not see that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, they could not see him as the king. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things 
and of Christ Jesus, who is in, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus is the King. He rules all things. He created all things, as Colossians 1.16 says. He made all the earthly kingdoms. He put in power all earthly rulers. But here's where the Jews were conflicted. Remember in, in John's Gospel, Jesus just fed the 5,000. And what did the populace want to do? The populace wanted to make him a king. But the leaders did not want that. They did not want to acknowledge Jesus as king. First, because he came with a message, not of revolution, but a message of peace and love. And secondly, because it would upset their own power and influence on the community. And mostly because they didn't want this carpenter from Galilee ruling over them. You know, it's the same today. There are those who call themselves Christians who will gladly accept the work of Jesus on the cross. Call him the Christ. And then deny him the fact that he is Lord, sovereign, and king. You know, it's not easy to live under the rule of Christ as king. To be in obedience rather than being in the world. You know, here in America, we are unique in that we do not have a king. One person who rules over everything. One person who hands down every law and, and we have to obey. We don't know what that is like. But if you are a Christian, that is what we have. We have one king who has handed down his law that we are to obey perfectly. And we are commanded to follow him in all things, even if it conflicts with the world and especially if it conflicts with the world. Jesus tells us that we cannot serve two masters. In the Gospels, Jesus is referring to God and money, but it holds true that you cannot serve the desires of the world and serve Christ at the same time. As Jesus says, you will hate one and love the other one, or be devoted to one and despise the other. 
you can ignore Christ as king now. You can live your life denying that he is king and sovereign over all things. Now. But there will be a time, as we are told in Philippians 2, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You can live your life free from the rule of Jesus. You can live your life living according to the ways of the world. You can live your life in the ways of your fleshly desires. But there will be that time when you will be on your knees claiming Jesus as Lord and King. And then it will be too late. So we've seen Jesus as the Christ. We've seen Jesus as the Son of Man. We've seen Jesus as King. And that too had been prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would be king because he fulfills all his prophecies. So Pilate says, I don't want anything to do with this guy. He's a Galilean. Send him to Herod. So he does. And Herod was happy. He says, ah, man, I've heard so much about this guy. I get to see him do some tricks. Charles Spurgeon wrote, The Lord never worked miracles to gratify idle curiosity. He would have, who have worked a miracle to heal the poorest of beggar in the street would not work a wonder to please a king in whose power he was. Herod questions Jesus. And Jesus does not answer him. So Herod gives him to the soldiers and the, chief and the priests who are still accusing him. And the soldiers begin to mock Jesus. They put on a scarlet robe, making a crown of thorns for him. And that is so ironic because they did not understand that he is the true king of all creation, and they are mocking him. These charlatans, or the, uh, Herod is like so many people today who call themselves Christians. They're looking for Jesus to perform some miracle in their lives that they can experience. They look for signs and wonders and follow the false teachers and preachers who pretend to heal the sick, raise the dead, all for a nice donation. 
This is experiential Christianity. And it's not the kind that lasts. Soon the fake healings, the fake promises of prosperity, the cool worship band, that all fades away. And people are left discouraged. These charlatans mock the risen Lord with their wild and unbiblical teachings. They mock the sufficiency of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. They tell you that you can help the Almighty God in securing your salvation by doing some good works, by giving, or even by getting baptized. Whenever you add to the perfect word of God, you mock him. We can look at many different verses throughout Scripture that tell us what is needed for us to do in our salvation and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. <clears throat> the bottom line, if you examine the whole of Scripture... We do nothing for our salvation because Jesus has done everything. We are saved by faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. But mocking Christ is not just trying to gain salvation on our own. We mock Christ when we call ourselves Christians followers of Christ and yet look like the world. When we do business in an unethical manner and have that fish symbol on our company car or truck, by having an affair and having that cross above the bed, by celebrating the sinful lifestyles of people and saying that, well, they were just born that way. Or worse yet, by advocating for the death of an unborn baby by saying, well, it's the mother's body. You cannot be a true follower of Christ and yet advocate for abortion. You cannot be a follower of Christ, a Christian in every sense of the word, and condone or celebrate sexual immorality. You mock the name of Christ. Martin Luther said that breaking the commandment about taking the Lord's name in vain means calling yourself a Christian and being like the world. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And from that point on, funny thing happens. Herod and Pilate, who were we're, we're against each other, we're at enmity with each other, we're enemies of each other, all of a sudden became friends. This shows how 
sin gravitates to sin, sinners to sinners, and mockers to mockers. But the reverse is also true. Saints to saints. If you are a follower of Christ, you want to be part of a church. You want to be part of the fellowship of the saints to worship our God and King. We want to be accountable to each other in our walk with Christ. Saints gathering with saints. There was a recent study, well, well, not recent anymore, it was probably 10, 15 years old, that says that within the first five years of your conversion, you will have very few non-believing friends. The reason is that when you, when God has worked in you, when God has changed your heart and you now call Jesus both Christ, Messiah, Savior, and Lord, you suddenly realize that the people that you used to hang out with are not really your friends. Great to party with. You could do all kinds of things with them. But now that God has convicted you, now that you are a true follower of Jesus, that change in you abhors that lifestyle. The drinking is gone. The drugs are gone. The swearing is gone. And you cannot abide it anymore. You can't stand to be around it. Sinners gravitate to sin sinners. Saints gravitate towards saints. We gather together to worship. We gather together for fellowship. We gather together to hear the word of God. And we gather together around the table. Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Son of Man, Jesus as the King, each of these offices really could be a whole series in itself. But what you need to get out of this extended passage is He is the Christ. And he is the king. But the question remains to you. Do you claim him to be the Christ who is the savior and the king? Or do you just accept him, the savior part, and want to live under your own rules? Do you gladly accept the forgiveness of sins, but still want to continue in your sin? Do you mock Christ in your life or do you honor him with your words and the works 
which is the fruit of your salvation. And lastly, do you fellowship with the saints or with the sinners? We are not supposed to separate ourselves from the world. We can't. We have to live in the world. We have to make a living. We have to be in neighborhoods. We, we, you know, we, the idea of going out in the desert to a monastery is not a viable option for us. First of all, a church does not grow that way. You all die out, and there's no regeneration there. But you have to come together. We need to be both salt and light to the world. In the world, if you are calling yourself a true Christian, you will be that salt and light. You will proclaim the name of Jesus. You will preach the gospel. You will, by your actions, show that you are different from the world. But we are to be separate in that we are to be that distinctive body in the world, yet a part of it. You know, this morning we're going to come and share the Lord's Supper. If you call Jesus,